I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. It's never an easy job working at a nonprofit that helps homeless people, but five months into the coronavirus pandemic, San Francisco nonprofit workers are frustrated and exhausted. Joe Wilson is the executive director of Hospitality House, a homeless shelter and service provider in the Tenderloin. He says more staff are requesting mental health leave and that San Francisco could be doing a lot better when it comes to addressing its homeless crisis. Joe Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You recently sent out a really interesting mass email titled Two Cities, a Tale, that described what nonprofit workers in San Francisco are dealing with during the COVID-19 pandemic. And you wrote, quote, nonprofit workers, first responders, health professionals, those who care for others, and those who stock our grocery shelves are living that trauma every day, then taking it home, hoping against hope that they're bringing that they aren't bringing more harm to others, their own families. Um, and it was a really, you know, emotional um, thing that you sent out. And I was wondering if you can describe what your staff at Hospitality House and other nonprofits that you work with are coping, you know, all these months into the pandemic that shows no sign of letting up. Well, I think people are are coping as best they can. And in some instances, aren't coping very well. We have um, increased... Uh, uh, instances of folks needing to, um, you know, requesting, you know, mental health days off, mm-hmm. um, particularly for those who are, you know, deemed essential workers, which is an interesting term for this field. Um, but, you know, there's, it's extremely difficult to do this kind of work, seeing and experiencing daily oppression, daily examples of uh, folks not being able to um, get resources that help them meet their very basic needs um, in the midst of a health pandemic um, that has exacerbated and fully exposed the existing pandemics of poverty and racism. Mm -hmm. And to experience all of that on a hourly basis, (laughs) and internalize um, that incredibly uh, debilitating trauma that um, folks in our community are experiencing, you know, also on an hourly basis. Right. How would you say the city of San Francisco is doing when it comes to helping homeless people during this crisis? I think the experience has been mixed at best. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a number of cases, uh, particularly with, um, folks, you know, at the extreme end of homelessness, I mean, just living on the street, trying to eke out an existence, trying to keep themselves um, healthy in the midst of uh, this public health pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the experience has not been very good. Uh, we know that uh, there have been an increased, a dramatic increased uh, number of homeless deaths. Um, uh, since the early part of this year, since February and March, uh, we know that uh, as a public health intervention, housing has to be first on the list. We know that when there are no housing options, if people can keep themselves reasonably safe and secure um, with uh, a tent, uh, that keeps themselves reasonably self, safe and secure and actually keeps the community reasonably safe and secure. To have those mm-hmm. tents removed um, with little or no alternatives 
um, is unconscionable. I know that uh, there have been, there are some good things to point to with making uh, increased numbers of hotel rooms available, but the supply is far short of, or the supply that's been made available is far mm -hmm. short of the need that everyone knows exists. Um, and um, for homeless youth, for homeless families, for homeless adults who are not visibly, uh, who show no visible signs of vulnerability, it has been extremely difficult uh, to get those folks to safety. Mm -hmm. And the city's been working hard um, to remove tents in the Tenderloin after getting sued by UC Hastings and other groups. Um, and they, you know, settled the case. And part of that was to uh, remove many tents. Where are those people going? Are they getting hotel rooms or what is happening to people whose tents are being removed from the Tenderloin sidewalks? We've been told that people have uh, uh, been given hotel rooms or uh, placed in other congregate settings because so much of the system is uh, uh, shrouded in confidentiality and for good reasons to protect people's right to privacy. Um, it can be difficult to ascertain if uh, to what degree that's actually happened. Uh, yeah. From our perspective, um, we believe that the removal of tents was not premised on getting people to a better housing situation. It was to remove the visible evidence of homelessness. Um, right. And that is, we should not feel good about any of that. And, you know, private institutions like Hastings, which has had a mixed uh, history in the neighborhood at best, uh -huh. You're choosing to make itself exempt from compliance with local planning laws and restrictions uh, when it suits them to have on the table a $450 million uh, development that they don't want to see any visible signs of uh, poverty and homelessness to affect that development. That is unconscionable to use that as a premise uh, to remove people's only basic protection in the midst of a health pandemic. Do you think that there's any plus sides? I visited the Tenderloin a couple of days ago and it is a lot easier to walk on the sidewalks and without having to walk into traffic and um, easier for kids to play outside now. And so it does seem like that there's some good aspects of the work as well. Do you see that? It didn't take a lawsuit to do that. <laughs> yeah. The, the city had access to those hotel rooms. We've been clamoring, and among others, I mean, there's been broad call for um, uh, making hotel rooms available, utilizing uh, the expertise and the capacity of uh, uh, human service providers like ourselves uh, to assist in that regard. Uh, mm -hmm. Folks have been standing, you know, at the ready. Um, you know, wanting to make themselves available. There are a consortium of family providers who have been paying for hotel rooms for families you know, out of their own resources, getting no assistance from the city. We paid for uh, hotel rooms ourselves. Um, the generosity of the San Francisco United Methodist Missions, um, you know, uh, Supervisor Matt Haney's leadership on that and our own resources mm -hmm. uh, to do that. And so it is unconscionable and disingenuous at best to say that now we're making progress because we've been sued. 
And there was nothing yeah. in the lawsuit about making increased housing resources available for homeless people. Hmm. What lessons do you think we're learning about poverty and inequality due to the pandemic? Well, it's the reverse of that. The depth of the health pandemic due to uh, poverty and racism. Um, we have seen that all of those um, uh, aspects of deprivation, oppression, um, um, you know, you know, public institutions that have been systematically dismantled, wealth that's been extracted out of uh, poor communities. Um, all of that's been fully exposed for us. And we should, we can no longer claim ignorance about the intergenerational and deep and profound effects of poverty and racism, in, particularly in communities of color, because those communities of color who were already you know, oppressed and systematically ignored um, mm -hmm. and kept out, locked out, and forced out of their communities are now shouldering the, the main aspects of this public health burden. I'll be right back with Joe Wilson. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Joe Wilson, Executive Director of Hospitality House, a homeless shelter in the Tenderloin. I hear from um, residents of San Francisco in a variety of neighborhoods every day on email uh, who are frustrated that new encampments have sprung up outside their houses, and it seems like this Tenderloin lawsuit has sparked a trend of um, other lawsuits being filed because people see that that's kind of the only way to shake City Hall into real action. Um, I've heard from people in Hayes Valley, the hate near the DMV and elsewhere. What would you say to those residents? Well, I would say to those residents that there are other options available to them, making them uh, their voices heard uh, through, you know, through the Board of Supervisors by, you know, exercising their right to hold their democratic uh, institutions, uh, civic institutions accountable. I think that it is a dangerous precedent to set that we can use the law whenever it suits us to be used as a weapon against poor people. That's not a good, uh, nobody should feel good about that. And we have plenty of examples in the history of this country where that has been true, where we have used the law to further oppress poor people rather than to lift up everyone in our community and grow the assets that everyone benefits from. What sorts of actions do you think they should take if there is, say, an encampment outside their bedroom window and they have a hard time sleeping at night? Like, you can kind of understand in some ways where they're coming from. Um, but of course, you know, homeless people have to have somewhere to go that's healthy and safe. So what should those residents do? Offer food, mm -hmm. support, mm -hmm. call someone, call a human service uh, provider in the community. Uh, and if you don't know, you know, call your district supervisor, uh, mm -hmm. ask for what, what supports exist in the community. Who can I call to get more assistance and help with this individual this family that clearly needs it. What can I do to extend a helping hand rather than turn a blind eye? Uh, are there ways to hold our public officials more accountable for delivering on this collective obligation uh, without using the law to further oppress people? Yeah, that makes sense. And what happened to the residents of Hospitality House that you helped get into a hotel? I talked to you about that a few months ago, but what's the 
what's happened since? Well, those uh, residents have since been transitioned, you know, moved out of the hotel that we were paying for. Um, and uh, the vulnerable group, there were a group of seven who were uh, considered age vulnerable for COVID-19. So they were uh, uh, relocated to another shelter in place hotel. That's a good thing. Uh, uh -huh. Others were relocated to other sites, including shelter in place hotels or congregate shelter settings. That's not the ideal in the midst of a health pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, they were not returned to the streets. That is a good thing. Um, yes. We believe though, Frankly, we would be remiss if I didn't say it took a long time for that to happen. The last shelter resident from our shelter program uh, was moved out on the 28th of June, uh -huh. virtually two months after we moved the majority of folks out of our shelter to better housing and more healthful housing. It is not an exaggeration to say that had we waited for nearly two months to do that, um, someone could have died. Yeah. So we, we feel good about um, having the opportunity to move folks to safety, but we don't feel good about how long the process actually took for uh, city departments to marshal more resources uh, to do that job. Mm -hmm. And is your shelter open again, or is it still closed? Shelter is still closed. Uh -huh. um, and we have to also point that out. That is, a, that is a reality that folks, you know, city residents need to understand. We have, for good reason, significantly reduced uh, shelter capacity. Uh, we have temporarily suspended the shelter reservation system. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a bad thing if alternatives exist at the same time. But the reality is we've reduced capacity, suspended shelter access, and we have not taken full advantage of the alternatives. And so what people are seeing are the effects of that, the human costs of that. Mm -hmm. There's been some controversy on social media mostly about what's happening inside the shelter-in-place hotels. Some people are angry that um, people may be given drug paraphernalia, you know, to use drugs safely. And there's been some reports of overdose deaths. Um, what's your perspective on those hotels? And do you think they're working overall? I think they are working overall. I think, uh, you know, providers are committed to uh, maintaining a safe and healthful environment. We are very much practitioners and committed to harm reduction philosophy, which means that we don't promote abstinence, we promote, promote safety mm -hmm. and keeping people alive. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of instances where if someone is an active drug user, it is better to allow them to do that in a safe and controlled environment than it is to allow them to overdose. I mean, so we, we are making, we are fully supportive of those decisions that happen. Mm -hmm. We also, need to hold ourselves you know you know responsible and accountable for maintaining this safe and healthful environment we believe that we do that and with a, 
you know, sufficient resources to make sure that that happening happens. You have enough staff, you have enough access to support staff, uh, healthcare workers, uh, behavioral health assistance, in-home supportive services uh, workers, DPH, you know, Department of Public Health, Street Medicine. All of those resources need to be brought to bear in every living community to make sure that people have the resources that they need to not only survive, but to thrive. Great. Well, you've survived all my serious questions. And now it's time for our famous lightning round, if you're ready for that. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's like Jeopardy. I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. Alex Trebek. <laughs> okay. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Ah, that's a good, hmm, probably uh, El Farolito in the Mission. Yeah, that's a good one. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? The Birds. Okay. And thinking back to when bars were allowed to be open, where's your favorite place in San Francisco to get a stiff drink? Hmm. Uh, Vesuvio's. Okay. What's your order? Well, (laughs) (laughs) vodka martini. Uh, shaken, not stirred. <laughs> James Bond-like. I like it. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read. Let's see. Labyrinth of the Spirits by uh, Carlos Zafon. Okay. What was your first concert? Ooh, this is going back a ways. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm dating myself. Yeah. Uh, I, I sneaked into a place called the Kinetic Playground in Evanston, Illinois, uh, to see Jimi Hendrix. Oh, wow. That's awesome. What year was that? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you know, when Hendrix died, so yeah. uh, <laughs> in the early 70s. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I had a fake ID. That's how I got it. <laughs> Finding out all sorts of things about you. Cool. (laughs) What is one myth about homelessness that you would like to debunk on this podcast? That homelessness is a product of behavioral pathology rather than, you know, social uh, conditions that promote extreme poverty in in the midst of obscene levels of wealth. Mm -hmm. If you had a magic wand, what would be your one wish for the tenderloin? That... Residents would feel empowered to to believe that their voices matter mm-hmm. and this is their community and they have the agency to fight for it. And, you know, economic problems have economic solutions. So, you know, we need more resources to improve the quality of life for everyone. Is San Francisco as progressive as its reputation would like people to believe? Yes or no? No. Okay. I thought you might say that. What are you most looking forward to about shelter in place ending? What will you do first that you're not allowed to do now? More relational support, more, uh, you know, counseling and engagement around the effects of secondary trauma. Mm. Last question. What is one thing you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Uh, 10 minutes to play um, chess online. Oh, cool. Are you a good chess player? Uh, No, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but I play one on TV. Um, (laughs) uh, No, I I was an 11-year-old from New Zealand that uh, checkmated me in (laughs) 
uh, nine moves. So oh, funny. Uh, my claim to fame. Great. Well, it was nice to talk to you today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Heather. Thank you to Joe Wilson for joining me today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening.